This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report. I'm Norman Swan, doing it without Tegan for the next couple of Mondays. Today, the remarkable advances in the treatment of multiple sclerosis to the extent that perhaps a cure can be contemplated for some people. What about schizophrenia? Important findings on recovery in people with schizophrenia from the country with some of the best outcomes, Italy. A study which shows that people who survived cancer need to be alert to other risks to their health over the years that follow, and an important anniversary. 25 years ago this Wednesday, the Port Arthur massacre occurred when a man with a semi-automatic rifle killed 35 people in cold blood. The political response led by Prime Minister John Howard made Australia an example among nations about what you can do about firearms if there's the will and the leadership. A group of public health researchers has written this up for a US audience in the New England Journal of Medicine. One of the authors is Associate Professor Philip Alpers of the University of Sydney School of Public Health. Welcome to The Health Report. Norman, thank you for having me. So there were 11 mass shootings prior to the Port Arthur Massacre, one of which was the notorious Hoddle Street Massacre in Melbourne. Yes, and Port Arthur was simply the last straw. A lot of people forget that. We had 105 people shot in mass shootings in that decade. And, yeah, Port Arthur was the straw that broke the camel's back. So remind us the response. I mean, it was just a, a national tragedy. The, the, the impact on the community was just huge, including the Prime Minister. What was the response? The Prime Minister came back from the funerals at Port Arthur, having shed a tear, like with most of us, and he settled on an extraordinary response. There, were, there had been 11 previous public inquiries. The, all of them came out with much the same recommendations, and yet the gun lobby completely stymied them. They were, they were the, 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 the gorilla in the room, and they just completely stopped any form of progress in gun control. But John Howard... To his great credit, as uh, a conservative prime minister, who's uh, a brand new prime minister, whose um, rural rump was uh, was was absolutely infuriated by what he was doing, and more more particularly also Tim Fisher from the Nationals, who came aboard and uh, Labour followed as well. It was a uh, a multi-party effort, but John Howard went into an Australia a meeting of the Australasian Police Ministers Conference in um, uh, in Canberra, absolutely armed to the teeth with every card in the pack. He he had 95% uh, approval ratings. He he knew what to do. The the all the work had already been done by pressure groups and by uh, civil servants and politicians who knew exactly what needed to be done. And uh, Howard outflanked and outsmarted and simply outmaneuvered all of the opponents in a very short time. And that was that was the success of it all. It all happened in 12 days. So the, the 12 days, I mean, it's just extraordinary. So they banned semi-automatic rifles and they also had um, people handing in their guns in massive amounts. Oh, the whole thing was aimed at the weapon of choice of the mass shooter. And that was the semi-automatic long gun. Uh, they targeted those guns particularly, uh, destroyed nearly 700,000 of them. But there were people in queues waiting to have their guns destroyed who had no legal reason to do this. They had non-prohibited firearms that they could have kept. They just wanted to get rid of them. And there were tens of thousands of gun owners who responded in the same way. These guns, uh, nearly a million, well, more than a million guns were destroyed in the years after Port Arthur. Uh, of course, uh, since then, there's been a great importation of guns. The the uh, and for very good reason. 
Texans farmers and so on replaced their semi-automatics with single-shot rifles and shotguns. And so more than a million guns have been brought back into the country since then, but they're single-shot. And so the public health, uh, this whole thing was a public health response. Um, Not that John Howard framed it as such, but it was a classic example of how to... Uh, how to save lives by doing things like reducing the road toll or HIV or smallpox. And while mass, mass shootings got the, which is defined as five or more people being killed in a in a in a mass in a shoot in a shoot in a shooting, including the uh, perpetrator, um, that's not the major public health impact of guns. That was just the most extraordinary result. What happened? What happened was that in the years before Port Arthur, as I said, 105 people were de- shot dead in in mass shootings. In the 22 years after Port Arthur, not a single one, uh, not a single shooting of that size occurred. And the that was that has been shown. At, it's extraordinary the amount of opposition that this research has had. But over the years. The, um, uh, the, the the research has proven to be very robust. But, are, but the, my point is that it's, it's in suicide, domestic violence, there's a whole r- range of things that happen with guns that, uh, that oh, far outweigh mass shootings. Things that nobody expected. I mean, 70% of gun deaths in Australia have nothing to do with crime. They're suicides and unintentional shootings, and yet they went down as well. Um, and it, it was an astonishing result, and this has been celebrated in, in many journal articles uh, over the years. The gun lobby hasn't gone away. Gun ownership has gone, well, should I say, the, amount of, the number of guns in Australia has gone up, but gun, gun ownership's gone down, paradoxically. Yes, uh, that, that is what we found today, in fact, um, that the proportion of Australians who held a gun licence has fallen by 48% since Port Arthur. And each year, a smaller segment of the population seem to decide that they need a firearm. Now, that's that's shown, uh, it's clear that those who already own guns have bought more guns, but those who don't own guns are becoming more numerous. And polling confirms this, with the proportion of Australian households with a firearm falling by 75% in recent decades. There's been a tremendous public a shift in public awareness and a shift in the gun culture the gun culture is shown by these figures to be fading in some in some regards but it hasn't gone away there's been there have been attempts to reintroduce semi-automatic weapons into australia oh certainly there always will be there are people who don't accept any of this and there are pressure groups who have like extraordinary um unintended consequence of how john howard's gun laws was that it made Uh, every shooting club in the country very wealthy. It actually brought in this huge cash cow because the only way that urban people could become a licensed gun owner was by joining a gun club. They might not have thought of it before, but here they are now paying their annual dues every year. And the shooters lobby has become uh, one of the most, uh, one of the wealthiest hobby and sports clubs in the country. They're just waiting for their opportunity as soon as complacency allows to start reversing some of these laws. So your message is, don't forget the message of Port Arthur. Yes, indeed. Philip, thanks for joining us. You're most welcome. Bye. Associate Professor Philip Alpers is in the University of Sydney School of Public Health and a founder of the website gunpolicy.org. This is RN's Health Report. I'm Norman Swan. 
Multiple sclerosis is one of the most feared autoimmune diseases. It's where the immune system attacks, almost at random, the fatty insulin sheath around nerves in the brain and spinal cord, causing a variety of potentially disabling neurological symptoms. MS used to be a sentence to a shorter life, often with significant years spent in a wheelchair. But there's been a revolution in the treatment of MS, and it's transformed the outcome for many people with the condition. Dr John Parrott is a neurologist who specialises in the care of people with MS. Welcome to the Health Report. Thank you for inviting me, Norman. Thank you. So just remind us how multiple sclerosis shows itself in people and, and in what and in whom. Yes, uh, so MS is... Um, uh, a condition that presents mostly in young people and the average age of onset would be around about 30 years of age and there's a propensity for women to be affected uh, more so than men as about three to one and uh, as you mentioned Norman the the issue with MS is not so much the brain and the spinal cord it's the the immune system so there's an aberrant or unusual immune response that occurs uh, and it's direct against some form of protein probably in the brain and the spine. We don't know what the target is, but ultimately these immune cells cause um, uh, damage to the fatty sheath of the nerves, so-called demyelination. And if that occurs in an eloquent structure, as we put it, so namely some part of the nervous system that has a, a direct function, uh, then it leads to symptoms. So if it was the optic nerve, it would be a visual problem. If it's the spinal cord, weakness uh, or numbness, um, the balance centre of the brain, the cerebellum, would be um, a loss of, of balance, of course. And it's really quite sinister because it proceeds in the brain without necessarily any symptoms showing and quite a lot of damage can be done before a symptom appears or you notice that it's actually getting worse. That is exactly the problem. So um, when MRI came about, the original studies demonstrated that for every single lesion that causes uh, symptoms, 10 occur in the brain. And so that's an awful lot of um, damage occurring under the radar. And MRI, medical magnetic resonance imaging, has transformed the treatment in some ways because it allows you to measure the effect of treatment rather than with symptoms because what bedeviled multiple sclerosis was it comes and goes and it waxes and wanes and you get better for a while and people thought that was the treatment. But in fact, it w often wasn't, but you've got this inexorable deterioration. MRI scans can pick this up and measure it objectively. Yeah, that's right. So it's, it's, um, it's much more accurate to have a composite of measures that uh, covers um, the potential for this nerve fibre damage or, or exonal damage. Um, and that includes uh, measurements of these clinical episodes, um, progression of disability, so in essence measurement by the neurologist and, and MRI. And MRI shows us a lot more than uh, we see clinically, but it's, it's moving on again. And so we realise that MRIs in some ways, you know, got a certain resolution and there's microscopic um, issues going on, there's microscopic damage and there's development of new techniques um, such as measuring brain volumes, brain atrophy and um, a protein in the blood called neurofilament. So neurofilament leaches out of the brain when there's, there's damage to the brain and uh, this is an even higher um, resolution on, on the damage that occurs in MS. So tell, me about this tell me about this revolution in treatment. So um, MS treatments have been available for about 25 years. The initial treatments were um, modestly effective. Um, the issue was that they were useful for some people, but for a large proportion, there was ongoing um, inflammation and disability. 
In the last 10 years, the efficacy of the treatments has increased substantially and, and progressively, and it's continuing to do so. So um, whereas uh, about 10 years ago, we were seeking to just slow the progression of MS, now there are treatments out there that are strong enough to induce genuine remission and, and protracted remission, not in everyone, but in, in fairly large proportions of people with MS. So it's, it's making a marvellous difference in terms of preventing disability. Not without side effects, of course. No, there's issues with um, all of uh, the, 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 these medications and, and the more potent medications. Um, there are the potential for infections. There's the potential for other autoimmune uh, sequelae. But generally, these can be managed very well by, by neurologists. And the and it's really a question now of you, you go in hard early with these medications. Yeah, so the whole concept uh, regarding the treatment of MS has changed. Obviously, the longer that you leave that process untreated or partly treated, the more likely there is to be not only um, damage accumulating, but also a kind of um, chronicity developing uh, to to the lesions. So uh, rather than just the singular acute lesion, they become chronic and smouldering and, 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 and ingrained, if you like. And so the notion is to not only uh, stop um, the uh, current inflammation and prevent disability, but also to, to stop the progression of that um, pathological problem. So tell me what induces this long-term remission. I mean, I know I've heard you talking about effectively cure in some people. Yes, uh, so it's, it's, it's changing the immune system. Um, and for some medications, uh, that does mean uh, staying on the, the drug prospectively, or at least as far as we know. For other medications, uh, there's a so-called induction therapy. So we're knocking down the troublemakers. We're knocking down the immune cells that are believed to be causing the autoimmune response and then uh, hoping and, and sometimes, sometimes expecting that they don't come back. And uh, there is a, a, a very potent treatment called autologous stem cell transplant, which actually does uh, that at a, at a very high level. So for some people, uh, and it's not everyone, as I say, but for some people, prob probably increasing percentages, these um, potent therapies that change the immune system are liable to uh, prevent, um, prevent recurrence of the disease in, 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 in a few, in some. It's, uh, it's extraordinary. And, uh, and is this learning about targeting these white blood cells, these T cells, translating to other autoimmune diseases? Uh, well, they, in some ways, I mean, the, the, interestingly, the treatments for MS are, are, are really quite specific. I mean, they, they can be used in, in other conditions where, uh, you know, you want to eradicate uh, immune cells, um, notably um, transplant and transplant rejection. Um, but uh, yeah, MS has in some ways uh, got, uh, uh, you know, its own set of um, medications and, and often uh, borrows from other fields, in fact. John, thanks for joining us. That's been illuminating. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much, Norman. Dr John Parrott is a neurologist at Royal North Shore Hospital and uh, the University of Sydney. People tend to think of schizophrenia like MS, the way they used to think of MS, as a one-way illness leading to lifelong disability and a shortened life expectancy. But in fact, recovery is possible and not that rare. The thing is that treatment and rehabilitation programs need to know what to work on. And an Italian study has suggested that these treatment pro and rehabilitation programs miss the mark. 
it found that the strengths which lead people with schizophrenia to recovery are not usually measured by clinicians and harnessed in programs offered to people living with the condition. Someone who's devoted his career to improving the outcomes for people, particularly young people with schizophrenia, is Professor Pat McGorry, who's Executive Director of Origin in Melbourne. Welcome back to the Health Report, Pat. Thank you, Norman. Now, this study followed about 900 people with schizophrenia over several years to look at what determined in, in their background and in their makeup the uh, outcomes with schizophrenia. What did they find? Yeah, it, um, well, it was an interesting study, but y- your point about the timing uh, of treatment, which was uh, you were touching on there with uh, the MS uh, debate or discussion there, is very important. These patients had a mean age of 45, which means that they've been ill for 20-plus years, uh, m- most likely on average. And the, the authors make this point um, um, that, you know, people with chronic schizophrenia uh, maybe uh, uh, even after four years of further chronic schizophrenia, the, the improvements may not be large. But we can come back to that in a minute. But just to summarise the study, as you say, it was a cohort study of 618 patients who were followed um, probably from around mid-40s to around 50, that, that sort of age, four-year follow-up. Um, and, and what they they measured were a series of baseline variables, which are the usual suspects, actually, you know, positive symptoms, psychotic symptoms, some negative symptoms, Social and neuro. And when you say negative symptoms, these are the things that stop rehabilitation because you become demotivated. You don't want to move yeah. around. You you shrink into yourself. Exactly. A volition is, is the sort of you know slightly jargonistic label for it. I mean, it means you just don't have any energy or willpower to do things, and and that's that's a consequence of the illness. Uh, so these things have been known about for a long time, and they and they are studied in in many studies. But this study is a little bit different in that they studied them at baseline and looked at them. As, as they evolved over the four-year period and, and also how they predicted real-life functioning. Um, and, and they did find some, some not unexpected, but, but interesting findings. So it was about how they responded to other people. It's their thinking ability, particularly when it comes to things of everyday life, and it was improvement of work skills because people don't realise that people with schizophrenia lose a lot of basic skills in their lives. That's right. And, and in, in a way, you, some people would argue that you've missed the boat if you're starting to look at this this point in, in, t- in time. But I think that's a, a too pessimistic approach because it's very interesting. The paper doesn't describe, I couldn't find a single word about what treatment these people were exposed to. They, 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 certain, they certainly made the point that these variables are not routinely measured in, in, in treatment programs. And that's true. And they're very important because they can be therapeutic targets. For example, Cognitive remediation can target social and neurocognition effectively now. Um, clozapine is a drug that improves all sorts of uh, outcome variables, and we, we didn't get any report on, on what percentage of the sample were, were exposed to clozapine. And then, of course, there's the thing between neurocognition, cognitive remediation, and, and a thing called IPS, individual placement support, you know, vocational recovery programs, which, which, um, which, which were the not, Italians are very good at, in fact. Well, the city of Trieste is famous for it. Yeah, but but I doubt very much if in routine psychiatric care in Italy that's available. It's certainly not in Australia. So so so, does this, um, so what we're saying here is that, that it's actually taking the person as a whole. You know, shock horror. Um, it's looking at their skills, their life skills, their work skills, their interpersonal skills, building them up, reteaching them how to think better about this sort of thing. And, you know, there is the clubhouse movement in Australia and internationally which tries to do that. There's been yes. the therapeutic communities. But we, and, we, we and really IPS, can't. And IPS, the thing I mentioned, that's hugely evidence-based but hardly available to any person with schizophrenia in Australia. And yet, despite the fact that you want a lot more money for the treatment of schizophrenia and other conditions and mental health, we, hmm. 
it's not being the money that is there is not being spent on this. No, I, I think in Australia, very few patients are offered these sorts of interventions like cognitive remediation or or IPS, and they're certainly not in Italy by the looks of this either. And the other thing is the timing in the illness. Now, you certainly wouldn't, you could you could probably get even even better outcomes in this in this patient population if you did these things. But but you'd want to do these things much earlier in the illness uh, if you were going to. Uh, achieve uh, the, the sort of gains that we that we would like to see in schizophrenia. You wouldn't want to wait for 20 years. You'd be offering this in the first year. So, um, look, I mean, I have to ask you this, Professor McGorry. I mean, you've been running Origin for many years. Your your shtick is early intervention in psychosis. Are you not doing this with your patients? Oh, we certainly are. We, we, we certainly have um, uh, uh, developed and, and we've pr- produced the research evidence that shows that IPS in particular works. Just remind us what we, IPS is. Sorry, individual placement support. So, in other words, you, when a person's vocationally vulnerable as, the, as a result of the onset of the illness in, in adolescence or transition to adulthood, you, you want to make sure that they can either retain their place in, in education or work or resume it very, very quickly. And it needs a, a special skill set and, and program to help them do that, which has to be embedded in, in the clinical program. You can't just refer them to the job network, for example. It just doesn't work. So that, that, that's, that's definitely what we do. We'd like to see that routine as part of routine care care across the country. And why isn't it routine care? Just people well, don't, I mean, you've been proselytising often, you know, long enough. Well, it's, it's, it's the implementation gap, isn't it? You know, you produce the evidence, but uh, governments don't fund it. <laughs> and uh, that's why we've had a Royal Commission in, in Victoria, because there's been a collapse of a uh, public mental health system here. It doesn't do anything like that. So what needs to be done to implement this? Because recovery, I mean, about, my understanding is that for for as long as we've been looking at people with schizophrenia and recognising the condition, about 20% of people do recover quite well. And that, that hasn't, that might even be more than that. And that hasn't changed that much. But some people do recover quite well. Um, but we've got, to, we've got to improve that. Um, what's yeah. the implementation path? Well, well, 20% recovered, you could almost say, despite treatment, despite the neglect. <laughs> and uh, then I, I think there's a much bigger percentage, maybe up to 30, another 30% that would, incru- would improve a lot better if, if, they, were, if they were given uh, evidence-based treatment. And, and early use of clozapine is a part of that too, by the way. Um, and then there's probably even more avertible burden of disease that you could, you could look at too through, through future improvement. So I think it's... This is a very treatable illness, and, and it's only, a, I think, a minority of people that do very poorly if, you, if, if they're if, given, if, if, um, if given, they're given the option, given yeah. the chance. Yeah. Pat, thanks as always. Thanks a lot, Norman. Professor Pat McGorry is executive director of Origin in Melbourne. Cancer care is a huge success story. If only schizophrenia care matched it. Breast cancer has almost turned into a chronic disease, with many women effectively cured, and even hard-to-treat tumours have improved survival. But life can be cruel, and a paper in this week's and last week's Medical Journal of Australia has found that people who are cancer survivors are at increased risk from other conditions, particularly heart disease, and that that needs attention. The lead author was Bogda Kozwara, who's Professor of Oncology at Flinders University in South Australia. Welcome to the Health Report, Bogda. Thank you for having me, Norman. What did you do in this study? Well, we were interested in finding out what it is that cancer survivors die of uh, so we could potentially address any uh, preventable causes of death. Uh, Certainly, cardiovascular disease has been emerging as a potential concern for cancer patients, and we wanted to understand how much of a problem it was and really put it in the context of any causes of death. 
and we really looked at the question of what happens to those people that we would categorize as cancer survivors. We tend to think that surviving for five years after cancer diagnosis gives you a high likelihood of freedom from cancer and normal life expectancy. So we wanted to know what it is that happens to those cancer survivors who eventually die, what do they die of, and how does the mortality rate for them compare to what would be expected if they never had cancer? How does that compare to the general population? And you looked at the South Australian Cancer Registry for that sort of data? That's right. So we took data from the South Australian Cancer Registry uh, for all the individuals who were diagnosed with cancer and survived for at least five years. And that included a very small small proportion of children, but majority were adult cancer survivors. And then we linked that data with the records of death, uh, which provided us with uh, reported causes of death and the rates of death that we could then compare to what are the data tables for the standard South Australian population, which is categorised according to sex and age. What did you find? We found that out of over 32,000 people with cancer, we had just over 17,000 deaths and we had a very long period of follow-up, 17 years, so we had very mature data. And out of that, we found that over half, 55% of Uh, deaths were attributed to non-cancer causes and of those over half were attributable to the cardiovascular disease so we knew so heart attacks and uh, strokes basically correct well in fact we categorized cerebral vascular disease and cardiovascular disease separately if you were to add those together then the proportion is even higher so Cardiovascular disease would really include predominantly ischemic heart disease, arrhythmias, etc. There was a very small proportion of cardiac failure in it. Um, and those cardiovascular uh, deaths contributed to about half of non-cancer deaths. What we found even more intriguing was that if we compared the rates of mortality for people who died of cardiovascular disease, these were higher than what we expected for the general population. So it is not just that we were observing the background risk of cardiovascular disease, which is common in Australian population. For some reason, cancer survivors who died of cardiovascular disease were more likely to die of cardiovascular disease than what would be expected if they never had cancer. And therefore were dying prematurely. Correct. And that is something that is very concerning and that is something that we really need to address. So what could be causing this increased... I mean, if you go back to the conversation I had with Pat McGorry there, I mean, people with uh, schizophrenia have a 25-year life expectancy gap with the rest of Australia, but that's not suicide. That's actually... They smoke a lot and they they have an unhealthy lifestyle um, because of the stress that they're living with. Um, And it's it's chronic disease that get Like heart disease, that gets them in the end. Is it the stress of cardiac... Indeed, I think I think the pattern in cancer is very similar to what we can observe in mental illness. Comorbidity is very common in adult patients with cancer and and cancer survivors. So there are shared risk factors. The risk factors for cardiovascular disease and cancer are the same. Inactivity, smoking, stress, uh, 
uh, anxiety, uh, obesity. But the, uh, but, the other, but the other risk factor in schizophrenia are the drugs themselves, which are pretty toxic and cause diabetes and therefore heart disease. To what extent are the cancer drugs that you use as a medical oncologist causing heart disease? So that was an interesting uh, discovery for us, uh, and we don't have a clear answer, but traditionally most of the cardiotoxic drugs that we have used to date tend to cause cardiac failure. And the proportion of cancer deaths that were attributed to cardiac failure were about 2%. Now, there are potentially uh, two explanations to it. One is that we might be observing less cardiac failure that we tend to think about. The other one is that the cardiac failure occurs and leads to death earlier than the five-year cutoff point. So perhaps those people have already died before we actually analyse their data. We're out of time, unfortunately, but the message here is, uh, Bogda, that uh, GPs and even cancer specialists need to focus on lifestyle and um, the other risks that people with cancer have. Thank Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Bogda Koswara is Professor of Oncology at Flinders University in South Australia. I'm Norman Swan, and this has been The Health Report. See you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.